So if we remember last time, we looked at Matthew chapter 24, and we read the whole chapter. I'm not going to do that again today. Um, but we are going to look back at the this, this first 14 verses of chapter 24. And we kind of got into it, but we didn't get as deep as I would like to because we... You know, we're kind of setting the scene for the entire chapter. But remember and keep in mind as we go over the next several weeks getting through this chapter that, you know, we're, we're keeping the proximal as well as the distal interpretations in view at all times. Um, there are some things that are going to be eminently relevant for this audience, but then there's going to be things that are not relevant to them. Okay. And even though that he says that there are some of these things that will come to pass with this generation, as he's talking to these disciples, number one, there's two ways of looking at that. There are definitely some of these things that do come to pass in that generation before they died. Um, many of the things specifically spoke of their death, and obviously that did come to pass uh, before they died, uh, while they died, uh, because they died. Uh, but there's also, there, there is a kind of, I guess you could say, an interpretation of that word that could be um, could be interpreted a different way, which is the generation can be any generation past Christ, okay? The generation of Christ and beyond. Um, so it's it's kind of, there's, there's more than one way of looking at that. It doesn't mean that this entire chapter 24 had to come into completion before... Uh, you know, John died on the Isle of Patmos, okay, is basically what we're getting at. So, all that being said, we dive back into chapter 24, and remember, we are answering what I said was three questions that the disciples asked when Jesus gave the statement that these this temple is going to be destroyed. They asked them the question, tell us when shall these things be, and tell us what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world. Now, I posed it as three questions last time, and the more that I think about it, the more that I look at it with this. Really, that second question, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, is just one. It's really just one question. Um, those two events were, were kind of put together, uh, especially in the minds of these Jews, um, which is probably why they're not separated. When shall be the sign of these things, question mark, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Um, that last sentence is all one. And it makes sense if what we talked about last time, because really to these Jews, if the temple is being destroyed, that is the end of the world, okay? Which would be the sign of his coming. So all of that coincided together in their mind, because if they, if Jerusalem, which was supposed to be the head of the kingdom is destroyed, well, obviously the kingdom is not going to be around anymore, Remember, we still had a struggle with this generation of Jews of grasping the concept of a kingdom other than what the, the old, ancient, physical kingdom of Jerusalem was. Okay? So you had this kind of disconnection with that. And Jesus is talking about these huge, spiritual, all-encompassing, world-reaching you know, goals with the kingdom. And these guys are still very much focused on this little area in the Middle East. Okay? So you have that kind of permeate through all this. And last week we talked about, you know, if Jesus is talking about this temple being destroyed completely, they're thinking, that's it. End of the world. Ball game. It's done. You're talking about when the world is going to be leveled, obviously, Jesus, because there's no way that the temple could not be in existence and we continue to exist. Okay? That's how closely it was tied to their national identity. 
There's no way. They, they could not fathom the idea of the temple being wiped out, of the Jewish nation in that area, in that inhabitants being wiped out and not existent anymore. They couldn't fathom that. It, it just didn't make sense with any of their makeup. That's why Jesus leaving the scene in Acts chapter 1, they're still going, when are you going to establish the kingdom? Okay, they're still looking for that. So this is a very ominous thing for them. So the sign of that coming and correlating with the end of the world is very much together in their mind, especially if we're talking about the destruction of the temple being this kind of sentinel event. We dove into there and talked about how Jesus paints this very bleak picture. He's talking about nations rising against nations and wars and famines and pestilences and death and destruction and all this kind of stuff that just makes you go, man, this sounds great. Sign me up. Okay. When he's talking to the, these Jews about this, when he's talking to his disciples that are going to carry on the message beyond him. Again, they're thinking Messiah. They're thinking establishment of the kingdom. And here Jesus is talking about basically the world coming unglued in the future, right? And that people are going to take you and like take you to synagogues and have you stoned and killed and all these things. And it just sounds like this is coming to an end. How could we survive this? You're talking about the unraveling of the world. Nations are rising against nations and wars and rumors and wars and pestilences and earthquakes and famines and destruction. How can anybody survive that? It sounds like everything's going to be utterly wiped out. And Jesus puts the caveat on that. that this is just the beginning of the sorrows. It's not even the completion of it. So you get this picture painted by Jesus going, man, this is going to be a bad few years for y'all. Okay. So you get them thinking in their head. How are we going to come out of this? How's this going to go? How are we going to live in this? How are we going to thrive? This does not sound like the conquering, victorious, messianic picture that we had. What we had was this picture from Isaiah that you're going to come back with flaming swords and all these things and everything's going to be wiped out and cleaned and everything's set right. Garden of Eden's going to be grown again. Lions are laying down with lambs. Dogs and cats are living together. Everything's happy, okay? That's the picture we get. You know, Ezekiel's telling us about every tear being wiped. and I mean, all of these prophets from back there had these pictures of destruction saddled next to restoration, okay? And it was this glorious restoration, this fantastic restoration. Like I said, the lion and the lamb lying down together thing is not a, a made-up phrase. It comes from there. There's this picture that it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen, okay? You're going to have every tear wiped. Every cheek will be dry. Every sorrow will be taken away. What a fabulous picture. That was the Messianic picture they had. And Jesus is telling them by prophecy... It's not going to be that way for you. You're going to see death. You're going to see destruction. You're going to have your brother-in-law and your sister-in-laws and your mothers and your cousins and daddies and brothers and all of them are going to be turning on each other and turning everybody in and kicking you out of synagogues and killing you and flogging you and all this stuff. And love itself is going to start to wax cold and go away. Say, okay, I'm having a hard time putting these two together. I'm having a hard time picking out Isaiah and Ezekiel and seeing scenes of beautiful restoration and glorious peace next to what you've just told me, Jesus. So either Isaiah and Ezekiel are lying or there's more to this picture than you've let us know yet. 
So you get in the picture there that they're they're kind of looking at this, and even we would look at it and go, oh man, this is not sounding great. Okay, for motivational speaker, you have really bombed it. Okay, this is not really going to give me a lot of encouragement. Great, I get to look forward to all this. How awesome! Well, the good thing is, and what we kind of talked about last week but didn't get deep into, was that I think verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, they are the beautiful, succinct, restorative phrases that we're looking for in this time of destruction and despair. In those two verses, he says, But he that will endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. And we kind of dove into this a little bit last week, and we kind of scratched the surface on it, but I want to round that out today. So in this picture, which again, in Jesus's perfect, awesome discourse here, what he has done is made a point, two points actually in my opinion, One of them is he's not giving you a false sense of security in what's about to happen. Okay, Jesus didn't make a paint a rosy picture because let's be honest. Do we expect in all honesty a rosy picture knowing the nature and the character of the world that we are a part of? Jesus is not going to countermand that. He's not going to come back and say, oh, I know the world has been really crappy up until this point, but man, it's going to get better. There's sunshine on the horizon. It's not, that's not the case. Why? Because he knows more than anybody just how broken this world is. In fact, the whole reason he's here is because this world is broken. We broke it. That's why he had to come. So he's standing here at the temple at this moment because of the despair, the destruction, the hopelessness, the sinfulness, the breaking down of the world that has been going on ever since Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay? So he knows palpably the nature of this world. He knows how broken and messed up it is and all the individuals in it. Okay? He knows that. So he's not going to paint them some false sense of security. Tell them, oh, because, you know, now you're great. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. Because it's not. He knows it's not. He knows it's not till he ends it. Okay? That's why he says it's just the beginning of sorrow starting once I'm resurrected. He says that's just the beginning of all this. Why? Because it's from that moment on till whatever the moment is. That this world is going to continue to follow this path until ultimately it is remade. Okay? That's what he's telling them. It's like, I'm not telling you this, guys, to bum you out. I'm telling you this to know what to expect. Okay? So that's purpose number one. All right? Purpose number two, I think, is because you really have to know your environment if you're going to make any difference in it. Okay? You really have to know your environment and what you're working with before you can ever really make a difference in that environment, right? So anybody who comes in, you may come into a new situation. You see this sometimes when you do go into overseas places, okay? So like you go to an overseas area, you go to Kenya, you go to China, you go to wherever you are, and you get there, 
And you think, especially if you're coming from America, you think that because you're from America and because we are as prosperous as we are and we're as creative as we are, that you could just go over there and see the problems and go, oh, I know right now what they need. If they just had some tractors, man, they could cultivate all this. They could farm. They would be self-sufficient. They'd have all the food they need. There'd be no more famine. They're great. I mean, look at how fertile the land is. If they just had some tractors, they would be 100% better. If you just gave them $50,000, man, they, the whole country could be fixed. All of its problems, all of its issues, its water issues, its farming issues, everything would be fixed if they just had some tractors, if they just had the money. And the reality is you were operating out of 150% ignorance. Because you're not there. You don't know that environment. You don't know that culture at all. You don't know that society at all. You don't know how any of it is built or framed. You don't even know how to farm over there. You've never done it. Why do you think in your arrogance that you could go over there and fix it just because you know what you think you know? You don't know the environment. You don't know the society. And because of that, you'll never be able to make a dramatic change in that area until you start investing yourself into that area. Okay? Same thing with this. Jesus is telling them, I want you to know what you're getting into. I want you to know what you're going to be facing. I want you to be acquainted with what's going to happen in the future because I'm sending you out there to make a difference. I'm sending you out there with a purpose. I'm I'm sending you out there on purpose. Okay. Notice when he prays for his disciples in, in John, he doesn't say, Lord, take them out of the world because the world's crappy and I don't want them to be in it anymore. He says, no, I'm actually wanting you to keep them in the world. In fact, you're sending them into the world and I want you to take care of them and bless them and help them while they go out. But don't, I don't ask for them to leave the world. I don't ask them to come out of the world. So well, why would Jesus do that? He's just told us this world is a pretty bad place. Because we're here for a purpose. We're not just here as placeholders in some book. We're not just holding ground. We're here to actually make some changes. Just like the light and the salt that we're called to be. So here he gives them both those kind of pictures because he has two purposes with that. To prep them but also to engage them in what they're going to be facing. Okay, And notice how he didn't tell any of them, hey, and avoid it. It's going to be problems. Don't let them, you know, they're going to take you. Don't let them just back off. Go hide in a cave. Ignore it. The world's a bad place. Y'all go hang out. I've saved you and given you all this knowledge. I want you to go hide yourselves. Don't engage. Let the world just fall apart. You stay off to the side. Preserve yourselves. Your lives are too important. No, he says, you're going to go out doing exactly what I commanded you to do. And in the process of that, you're going to get beaten up. You're going to get kicked out of synagogues. You're going to get flogged. You're going to get flailed. You're going to get killed. Go forth and preach the gospel. So it's a bleak situation he's painting, but those two verses down there give tremendous hope and purpose to why you're going to go into it. Number one, he makes the point, the one who shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Well, now let's talk about that. If we're talking about a proximal interpretation of that, then there are going to be some that are going to make it out of this alive. John ended up going all the way to the Isle of Patmos in like 90 AD before he died. Whereas Peter and Paul and the others, they were killed much sooner than that. Stephen's going to be dead in a few chapters, okay? So those were not able to endure to the end, okay? In that sense, all right? In a physical sense, okay? But there's also, this this gives 
hope, okay, through every generation of the sickness and the wickedness that we face, okay? Endure. You're called to endure. You're not called to give up or give in or give out or hide out. You're called to endure it. It says, yeah, it's going to be bad. And there's going to be all these rumors and stuff. And this is just the beginning of it. And it's going to get worse. And there's going to be problems you're going to face that you've never faced before. And he says, but the commandment is endure. And I'm guaranteeing you something. If you endure to the end, you shall be saved. Okay? That's the, that's the statement that he gives of hope. Saying it's not going to be forever. This is not some kind of eternally lasting destruction, despair, and hopelessness. He says, there's an end to it. One of these days, I'm going to end it. All right? It's going to be put to rest. This is all going to be taken care of. In that short, small sentence, out of about six or seven verses of just utter chaos and destruction and hopelessness, you have Christ saying there's going to be an end. There's going to be an end to it. Strive to make it to the end. Endure. Go through it. Because there is going to be an end to it. The second verse there is the one that we spoke of briefly last time. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then will the end come. So this is, this is one of those things that there's a timing on this, okay? Christ is making a point that there is an end coming, endure, and this is kind of, this is my strategy, I guess, if you could use it that way, as Christ is saying, okay? This is the framework you're looking at. The gospel is going to be preached to all nations. It's going to be a witness against all of them, and then the end will come. Okay, so again, you got two verses there that predict an ending to all of this despair. So, I mean, any of us will make the statement, you know, well, if I just know that I only have to do this for X number of months, X number of years, anybody, you know, anybody can survive this bad schedule. Anybody can survive this bad week. Anybody, as long as they know it's coming to an end, it's kind of like, oh, I know I can get through this. Okay, it's just a week in the big scheme of things. It's just a year. All right. Anybody can deal with that and make accommodations if it's just an, if you've got an end time. You kind of look at it differently. If this was some perpetual thing you never thought you were ever going to get out of, that is where suicide rates go up. That's where depression rates go up. That's where hopelessness rates go up because they don't see an ending to it. This is where I'm at. This is who I am. This is my situation. I can't ever get out of it. I can't see a way out. I don't know where to turn. I have nowhere else to go. And then we hit the rock bottom. So what we try to grab from these two verses out of this section, and what's going to kind of, I guess you could say it's going to ring the entire discussion around chapter 24, is that even though you're seeing all of this destruction, all of this despair, we have to be careful not to fall into the same trap of hopelessness that the rest of the world succumbs to. We have to be careful not to fall into the same trap of hopelessness that the rest of the world is succumbing to. Okay? I told you that probably the most striking verse out of this sentence is the one in verse 12 where he says that the iniquity shall abound so the love of many will wax cold you know that was kind of the marker i laid out there is like when things you think things are bad 
they're bad, but when it gets to this level, that's when we really start seeing things unravel. Because when you start losing what we would describe as just very natural human decency towards one another, there's there's no more inhibition. There's the gloves are off. Okay? When people feel it is not just acceptable but commonplace and understandable that we can be wicked and awful and hateful to each other, then, then that's a problem. It's a huge problem. It's very easy for even those who believe in Jesus Christ and everything that he preached and taught to look at that society and look at that situation and go, There's, there, we're beyond. There's nothing else that can be done. This is a hopeless situation. I don't see how we can turn around and come back from this level that we are at. Okay? And we have to be careful that we do not succumb to that kind of rhetoric because we don't believe in all this. Okay? We're not hitching our trailer to all of this. And we have a much greater purpose just as that striking statement of the love waxing cold is there, you have an equally, if not greater, striking statement of that the gospel will be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Why is that so important and even greater importance with the former? Because it may be that the world continues to wax worse and worse and people get worse and worse and love starts going away. But the good news that we have, the gospel does not stop. It doesn't have an end. It doesn't die out. Even with all the persecutions and brothers and sisters turning on each other and famines and pestilences and wars and rumors of wars and all this stuff. Guess what? Christ just told us by prophecy the gospel is not going anywhere. It's going all the way to the end. To the end of everything, the gospel will always be there, bearing witness to all nations everywhere. Okay? You say, why is that so important? Why should that be so hopeful? Because the gospel itself is the only hope we have. The gospel is the only message of hope. The kingdom is the only place of hope. And he says it's never going to go away. And even as the world gets lower and lower and lower, the gospel's still there, raising up every time. The gospel's in every nation. The gospel is bearing witness. No matter where you go, what you do, how long it's been, how far removed we are from Christ, whether it's another thousand, two thousand, three thousand, five thousand years, he says it's still going to be there bearing witness. That where you see hopelessness, you have hope in Jesus Christ. Where you see despair you have hope in jesus christ where you see destruction and death and misery and looking around going man even love is dying out you got this gospel of love that ain't going anywhere so he says this should bring you a beautiful sweet hope that the gospel's going to be there and even more so that we are a part of this gospel kingdom and this gospel message this is what we're here for you know, we talked about that. Jesus didn't say go and hide. He said go and make disciples. There's a reason for that. Because we are here as the counter agents to all the hopelessness and despair. Without us, there's no one else preaching the gospel message. You can't expect the government to preach that gospel message. You can't expect, in fact, most cases you see it suppressed. It's, it's suppressed in most places. So we're here to give that hope. Everywhere 
where iniquity is increasing, despair is increasing, and hopelessness is taking root, the gospel message is also there bearing witness against it. Okay? So this big, amazing story that we have been talking about is part of our... It it is our story. And it permeates the world. It permeates the nations to God's teaching to or speaking to, I should say, God's amazing grace in some of the darkest times of our world. Okay, do we see how big and amazing it is? And do we see how important it is? And do we see how we fit into it? So to proclaim the love of God in a world that is progressively losing its love, that is what we're here for. As you see iniquity rise and the love of man grow cold, we rise and the gospel preaches about love. As everyone's over here saying it's better to hate and divide and segregate, we're over here saying love your enemies, love your neighbors, love God. As love is disappearing on this one side, we're over here hopefully... As we have been commanded and obedient, we're keeping to what Christ taught us, which was love, compassion, and mercy to everyone, even our enemies. I mean, even you could argue in a philosophical way how everyone could agree treating your enemies poorly is not morally negative, okay? Because, well, they're your enemies. They've done bad things to you. Quid pro quo. Get what you got. Give what you get. You know, all that kind of stuff. You could get everybody on board with that. And no, I mean, even the staunchest moralist would say, well, that's, that's, that's acceptable. Okay? But that's not our gospel. Jesus is telling us, he said, no, you've got to go love your enemies. That's how crazy different you're going to be in this world. Well, if you start loving enough of your enemies, they're going to start becoming your friends. You start loving enough of your enemies, there's people that are going to take notice of that, whether they become your friends or not. You're going to have some people looking at you becoming your friends, noticing something different, seeing a little bit deeper into something that's different than this crazy, broken, mixed up world. So that's just amazing that you would love someone who did that to you. So what is the gospel message? And we've probably heard about a thousand of these sermons in your lifetime. Okay. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Okay. Where's the thousand and one? If you, as I have said probably numerous times too, as you've heard me probably say this, what is the gospel plenty of times. A lot of times when we talk about the gospel message, we want to fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and say, this is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you have heard me say it over the last however many years, you've heard me say it's that, that statement of what the gospel message is, is missing a huge part. And that is his life, death burial and resurrection his life is like the majority of it okay it was three days for his death burial and resurrection he had 33 years before that okay it was in his life that he commanded us to repent and be baptized it was in his life that he showed us how he healed multitudes with compassion and mercy no matter who they were that was his life that he showed us The gospel message is not just about his death, burial, and resurrection. It includes his life, okay? Everything that he did, all that he was a part of, what he showed us to be. Remember, as we looked in chapter 28 from the Great Commission, we talked about how it said, Go forth and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to do whatsoever I taught you. That's the gospel message. Guess where all those teachings came from? His life, what he did. 
as he sat down with his disciples going, love your enemies. Husbands, take care of your wives. I mean, all that's in there. That's part of the message. You say, well, why is that important to it? Why does that make such a difference? Because it's those, those things right there are capstoned by his death, burial, and resurrection. His example of death on the cross was not just some legal satisfaction, okay? It was, as it is described in Hebrews and other places, it was the epitome of being a servant, And he tells them that in his discussions with his disciples. He says, look, I'm showing you what a servant looks like. I've been showing you the whole time. I've been taking care of these people for you. I've been taking care of you. I've been washing your feet. I've been showing you what it looks like for a servant to live in the kingdom of God. And I'm ultimately going to put it all to rest and give you the most perfect example by dying for each and every one of you, even though you don't deserve it. And I most certainly don't deserve it. So all that's capstoned with that. His life, though, goes with it. And it's in his life that we see all those interactions of the things that he did. We see him showing compassion on fathers for their dying daughters, on mothers for their dying daughters, on widows for their dying husbands and sons. And on, I mean, all these things we saw him walking through the world for 33 years, three of which we have included here. You know, walking through the world in this time, showing us what it looked like to be with him. And he tells us in Hebrews, as we pointed out before, that he did that on purpose. He didn't come down here and live for 33 years because there was some kind of law satisfaction that had to be achieved there. We've talked about that before, too. He could have just died on the cross and paid the sacrifice. Boom, we're done. As far as the legal justification for everything that we look at, taking it as an abstract. Okay. But he says that's not that's not why he did that. In Hebrews chapter 2, he says that he came, that it made sense, it was becoming of him to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things to make, pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to support them, help them, strengthen them that are tempted. So he says there that the captain of their salvation, okay, was made perfect through the sufferings that he went through. And he did it on purpose. Because he wanted to be acquainted with the ones that he was sanctifying. And even further than that, he wanted to go through the sufferings and temptations they went through so that he himself could be a better high priest making reconciliation to help those with the sufferings they were dealing with because he himself had suffered the same things. That's how amazing he was and still is. But that's how amazing his life story was. He went through all of this to be acquainted with the things that we deal with. Okay? And you'd say, well, why? Why would that matter? Well, because as we enter periods of hopelessness, despair, misery, death, destruction in our own lives, we know that Jesus gives us Hope, And you say, well, why does he give us hope? Well, because he's been there and he's done that. He's been acquainted with it too. 
We don't get to come up to Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, I've got this really big problem of hopelessness or I'm really depressed right now. And Jesus go, I know, I don't know what you're dealing with, but, you know, here, boom, here's some roses or something to make you feel better. That's not what he does. He says, no, I know, too. I know what that's like. I know how that feels. I know what it means to go through what you're going through because I've been through it, too. That's how amazing it is. And that's why when we're talking about this gospel story, this kingdom story about Jesus Christ, this is the kind of testimony we get to give. It's like, yeah, I know things look bad. I know this life that you're trying to find. You think there's this life out there, quote unquote, that you're missing out on. And what Jesus did when he came here is he taught us what real life looks like. Okay, What real life in living out the will of the Father looks like. And in particular, it looked like a life of love, of compassion, of mercy, of kindness, of gentleness. All these things that are what made Jesus and makes God who he is. That's why when we talk about the fruit of the spirit and we talk about love, joy, peace, mercy, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, all of these things that we put in there. Those weren't just like some bag of tricks that the Holy Spirit came up with. They came from his own person and character. So when he gives them to us, that's what that's what we are to embody as well. So he came to show us what real life looked like so that when you do encounter someone or you yourself become someone who sees the hopelessness of the world and wants to succumb to it and think that there's nobody out there that ever understands what I'm going through, then I'm guaranteeing you, I may not understand what you're going through. You or your friend or your spouse or your cousin or your brother may not live it out and know what you're going through, but Jesus does. And he's the one you can turn to and the one you should turn to first. Because of all the people in the world, he's the only one that's going to know every minute detail of what you're dealing with. And be able to say, I'm not just some God on a rock that can't be touched, that doesn't feel, that has no emotions regarding you. I know you. I loved you. I chose you. I have compassion on you. And beyond that, I came down here and lived and suffered some of this stuff just so I could talk to you about it. Okay? So this gospel message is the message of hope and love and mercy and compassion. The one that that Jesus lived out in his example. And it will always stand out as that. Think about it. Way back then, all the time in between up till now, the gospel is promised, number one, to continue to exist. But number two, that it will always stand out. As a message of hope, compassion, mercy, and love that, that is counterbalanced against everything we see in the world. Notice there's no other book that comes up against all that. There's no other document that people bring up. Have you ever noticed that like on CNN and Fox and all that, nobody like breaks out the code of Hammurabi or something like that and goes, look, this, look, if we just live like this, Republicans, Democrats, settle your differences because look what the code says. But we as believers in the gospel can hold that up. And I wish we did more of it on Facebook than we do. Instead of jumping in with everybody, I wish that's what they did. Let's come up and say, hey, no, no matter what, as despairing as you might be, no matter what, here's the, look at the gospel. 
Look at what Jesus lived through. Look what he did. Look what he promised us. Look at our lives and then look at your lives and see how he's worked in them. Who cares about all this political stuff? Who cares about all this world affairs stuff? The only thing we should care about is as we see all of these people trying their hardest to drive wedges of division and hate and all this stuff, that we should come back with an equally and much larger wedge of the gospel. Okay, And say, hey, look at how this just kind of makes it better. Look at how this just changes things. Look at how this changes your perception of the despair and the hopelessness in the world. And is this not your story? Do we not have this same story? Do we not share this same testimony that we were lost? We, if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we can look back on our lives and go, we were lost, we were sinners, we were destroyed, we were hopeless, we were in despair. Jesus came, Christ saved me by his loving kindness. He delivered me and that I'm no longer this person that looks at the world with the eyes of despair and hopelessness. I have a hope in Jesus Christ. I have a hope in the resurrection. I have a hope in the end of all this that he promised is going to come that I look Look at it and going, yeah, it may be for this life. It may be for this lifetime. It may be for tonight. The sorrows may be there, but I have hope in the morning. That it's going to change. This is our story. This is what we claim when we say we profess in Jesus Christ. This is what the world lacks. And this is what we are called to proclaim. Okay. We are called to be the counter agents to all this. We're not, we're not called to sit back and look at it all and go, well, good luck with y'all. See you later. Maybe I'll see you on the other side. We're called to this. We're called to the, give this message. We're called to minister in this world. As a, Going all the way back to the beginning when we started all this, I almost certain and that's probably a bad thing to say but i'm almost certain that in the very first message when we were talking about being the salt and light of the world i talked about how every believer in jesus christ has a calling okay it is that calling that you are called to that jesus commanded and called you from darkness into light Okay, and then called you to be the light in this world. Okay, he didn't say it was optional and he didn't give you the 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 permission if you so chose. And he didn't say it would be a good thing if you could do this, but don't worry, I'll work it out. Otherwise, he said, I have saved you and then I have called you and I've called you to be the light and salt in this world. That's what I have created you for. So as darkness is ever increasing, where are you going to find light in this world? Well, we're not going to find it from Buddha or Wikipedia, okay? We're going to find it from the gospel. And the only way that's going to happen, okay, the only way that we as a people, okay, are going to have any change in this world is if we're actually living out what he called us to do. Otherwise, like I've said many times, we're like forks trying to be used to eat soup. It doesn't work. That's not what we were created for. We were created for a different purpose. So we look and we take root in this promise that Jesus gives us here. This is the first time he talks about the gospel being spread. The next time is in Matthew chapter 28, which is what we call the Great Commission, where he says... 
All power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and teach all nations, which we said means make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Which means this is going to keep going until the end of the world. Amen. Which also means it couldn't have been ended in Acts chapter 2 because that's not the end of the world. Amen. So it's still there. The Great Commission is still in effect. We are still called to it. We're still called to make disciples. We're still called to make disciples by teaching them all the things that Jesus taught us. And hopefully we're not falling in the pitfalls that the Pharisees did that Jesus calls them out on that we're teaching it to them but we ain't really doing it. Because as we talked about, that was one of the things Jesus called out and said, you hypocrites and generations of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? You teach the right stuff. You do something that actually countermands it. And that's what I've said is probably one of our biggest pitfalls that we need to be conscious of is that we fall into the habit of teaching, quote unquote, the right stuff but not doing it. And if we think the world is getting bad, but aren't doing the express things that Jesus told us to do, we can't look at the world and go, man, this place is just so awful and it's getting worse and worse and there's nothing to be done because that's contrary to what Christ commanded us to do. He's talking to his disciples and telling them, you're about to go up to getting face to facing persecution, stonings, and death. And he said, now go preach to them. We're facing comfort and the hard problem of getting out of bed to get to church at 1030 and still can't preach the gospel. Okay? Still have a hard time of living it. They were walking into death orders and were living it out better than we are with all of our abundant supplies of techniques and things that we have available to us. We have become very comfortable listening to the right stuff, but not really, you know, living it out all that much. Very comfortable with making excuses why I don't have to love my enemy. Making a lot of excuses about how it's inconvenient to love my neighbor. Even making excuses as getting kind of hard to love God with everything that I have. So the the picture that Christ gives us, though, is that this is the gospel message. It is my life, my death, my resurrection, and all of that is built around hope, joy, love, peace, compassion, mercy. And that is what I am now commanding you to go live and teach wherever you are and go to all nations. The beautiful thing about that is, is for some reason, we have pinholed that to think that means that only Americans go to other nations and that's how you fulfill that. But in a grander picture, number one, Christ has us in our nation to teach our nation where we're a part of, number one, our families, our communities, our societies, our everything, okay? We have that commandment just to ourselves. He didn't say, every one of you got to hop on a plane and go to China. He expe- we got to be doing it here, okay? Number one. Number two, he's raised up people in all nations, to teach and preach this gospel. Guess what? There's people in all nations. God is raising up even more people in all nations. 
doesn't require an American missionary to get over there to establish the church. You know why? Because it's Christ's church in his country. He established it way before you did. He was already there. He didn't need your help. He called you to go join, to go glorify him, to go preach to his people. But he didn't need you. And nor did you somehow stamp your approval on his church. It was his church before you ever got your stamp out. And he's done that in all nations. And he's continuing to do that in all nations. And as he says here, he will continue to do that in all nations. Raising up his people to proclaim his gospel message to be a witness against all nations. But he has equipped and called us to do things with it. Again, in our own local context and just like we're going to do in about four days. In the greater worldly context. If God has given you the gifts to do it, you should be asking God for places you can go do it. Whether that's down the street or across the ocean, okay? And he's equipped some people to do that much better than he has equipped others. The question is not whether it's applicable. And the question is not whether you should do it. And the question is not, the question is when and where do I go, okay? And I am willing and obedient to follow. That's, that's the question. That's the only thing that needs to be decided in this. You know, some people will balk at doing things like that because they don't feel some kind of warm and fuzzy tingling feeling when they're supposed to go. I don't think Paul felt that feeling either when he was shipwrecked after trying to go to Rome, okay, in bondage. I don't think Paul was going, oh man, this mission trip just didn't turn out the way I thought it would be. Maybe it's that God didn't want me to go to Rome. Because if I was going to go to Rome, it should everything should be smooth sailing and no problems because it's what God wanted me to do. God said, I'm going to take you to Rome, and I'm going to take you to Rome through the junk you're going to have to go through to get there. And guess what? On the way, you're going to, like, surprise some guys over here with a snake biting you. And I mean, you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to be a gospel message in and of itself, whether you're on the ship, whether you're in prison, whether you're on some random island. Maybe not going all the ways that you think it will, but you will still be my gospel messenger wherever you land. You're still called to go forth. And it may be that you're led down the street. It may be that you're led to the next state. It may be that you're led across the Atlantic Ocean. Wherever you go, you carry the gospel message from Atlanta Airport to Nairobi Airport to Shanghai Airport. Wherever it may be, wherever you're landing, wherever you're stopped, wherever you're eating dinner, you're carrying the gospel message of hope, peace, love, and mercy. And that's your calling. That's what we're called to. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. So that's why when he's giving us this hopeful statement here, looking at the world getting bad, but then telling us, hey, don't worry, it's, it's going to be okay. And in fact, it's not, even going to, it's not going to just be okay. You are actually in this world for a purpose. This bad, broken up, messed up world. You are here as my ambassadors with the ministry and the message of reconciliation, standing up against a world that is increasingly getting darker, more desperate, and losing its love. You're the one that's going to step out of that darkness and show the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're the one that's going to stand up to that person who's dealing with depression or despair or hopelessness and say, yeah, I know, I know it is bad, but there is an end... And there is a hope. There is a way out. And there is a salvation in Christ. 
So the question is, are we doing it? Are we going to do it? Do we recognize how important it is for us to do it? And do we understand that we're the only ones who can or will do it? That's where we stand with this. Some way, God bless us to really work on that.